anthropologists tell you that language drives culture, right? And in one of the first reports I saw in one of the companies where I was, they had acquisition and it was paid acquisition and then it was free acquisition. And I just had a heart attack. I'm like, what do you mean by free? Yeah, it's not, it's not PPC. It just, it's coming in directly. And I'm like, well, how do you think that happens? Right? How do you think people just magically land onto your website? Welcome to the Infosys Knowledge Institute podcast, the Brilliant Basics edition, where we talk about digital disruption, design, and future work. Today, we're going to talk about digital disruption in financial services. I'm Anand Verma, European Head of Digital Services for Infosys and founder and CEO of Brilliant Basics. I'm absolutely delighted to welcome my guest, Luis Tomasoni, Chief Marketing Officer at a fintech company called Jidea. Luis, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Anand. Great to be here. So, Luis, before we start uh, the conversation, and we have got a number of areas to cover from financial services, fintechs, to roll-up marketing and technology, and many other areas, which I'm sure our listeners will enjoy listening to, you have a fantastic background, and you know, you're very well-traveled professional. I'm pretty sure our audience will love to hear about who Luis is, uh, what is some of the background in terms of the work that you have done and places that you have lived in as well? So let's start with that. A bit about yourself uh, and your kind of backstory, if I may. Yeah, sure, Anand. Um, I, I guess you summarized it quite well. My life has been traveling around. Um, I've worked in Latin America, North America, Western Europe, Eastern Europe, and the Middle East as well as uh, a lot in Asia in my most recent roles. My background is definitely born and bred in banking um, and then evolved you know, for many, many years on the product side, the sales segment and marketing side, and definitely, I guess, pivoting towards fintech in, in the last four to five years, which is where the industry is going. So it's been interesting to see how everything has evolved and, and to be part of this new wave of innovation and disruption on the fintech side. That's brilliant. You know, you're a global citizen, clearly, right? So in terms of you've worked in many countries, any specific kind of stories or the countries that you love to work in, you know, love to hear from you on that. Yeah, I think each country and region has its own charm and challenges as well. Having worked in Europe for, for many years, it's quite a developed market and, and, and to see fintech actually really take off in Europe as opposed to, you know, let's say North America has been quite interesting for me. You have large incumbents. There's definitely a lot of knowledge, a lot of technology, and to see it um, come up in Europe has been exciting for me. The Middle East for me has been more of a traditional banking, but now with Judea, we're definitely seeing fintech and technology starting to take off, especially in, in the GCC, you know, with the likes of Noon, Kareem, and now Judea, it's, it's definitely a hotbed for, for disruption, and that's taking off. My experience in Asia, specifically in China, and having worked with, with Alibaba, there, my experience has been the pace at which technology has taken in China, especially in the last five years, and within the Alibaba group, and having worked there, it's been astounding. So you can definitely see how, how everything is, especially technology, has sort of started moving east to west uh, and, and seeing how that is developing uh, and being able to be a part of that in different countries and in different regions has been 
absolutely phenomenal. What a varied experience, and I'm so looking forward to talking about some of these topics that you mentioned in your journey itself. You know, one of the key pillars of our topic today, Lewis, is the evolution of financial services industry, right? And there has been a tipping point, I would say, four or five years ago, financial services to tap into better way of engaging with customers. And now I believe, you know, there's a tipping point for fintechs with regards to, you know, how they're becoming mature in the market as well. What's your take on how financial services industry has evolved? And you've worked in both, you know, retail wealth management as well as on the payment side. So just kind of a few things that you're seeing or you've seen in terms of the evolution of financial services since you've been working in the industry itself. In terms of technology, it's been interesting and in, in having worked in, in traditional banks like, uh, you know, Citibank and, and large incumbents, whether it's first Abu Dhabi Bank, I think the way they reacted to technology, I remember about 10 years ago, everyone was talking about smart branches, right? So it was really pivoting around the same things, right? Trying to overlay technology to a traditional mindset. Um, and I think it's been interesting how in the past decades, most of the traditional banks have just either relaunched uh, you know, mobile banks, but based on legacy platforms or just try to you know, add technology to existing um, infrastructures or way of doing things. I think where fintech came in is they really understood the customer and, and the customer experience um, and, and really revolutionized the way people interact with financial services. And I think that's, that's where the main difference has been. Yeah, and I think you mentioned a really good point. And I was talking to someone a few weeks ago about this concept of digitization or digitalization. And they're two kind of very similar sounding words, but has different meanings to it, right? So what he was saying was digitizing is basically making something digital with regards to a process or efficiency. And I think that's where I think your point about smart branch is so interesting, right? Because I remember working on National Bank of Abu Dhabi in terms of we're looking at the future of branches, right? And then there is a digitalization, which is where fintechs are coming in and they're completely reimagining a new kind of marketplace, new ways of working. Would you agree with that though, that definition in terms of how you're seeing you know, both sides of the spectrum? It's exactly as you're saying it, Anand. There's, you know, there's a huge difference between both. And one is definitely reimagining. And I guess if I had to put it crudely, if we look at one versus the other, one was digitizing existing processes and the way banks like to work. So it was more inward looking. So how do we digitize this process that we do for ourselves? And FinTech said, well, how do we digitize things that customers do? So that's a huge change in mindset, right? And I've seen it at, at World First and in London, and, and that's the essence of fintech. And, you know, how do they digitize everyday things? How do they make things intuitive? And how do they plug themselves into the way people naturally do things versus trying to digitize the way companies do things? Absolutely. And, and I think this is where the fintechs are taking a step forward. And let's talk about, you know, some of the, you know, challenges the large financial institutions are also having, but they do have a large set of customers, right? Well, fintechs are starting from scratch. And this question keeps coming to my mind is, is there a hybrid model where both large 
companies, financial services companies will continue to serve customers and fintechs will also continue to create the disruption through their innovative thinking. Do you see a kind of a joint model between large financial services companies and fintechs working together? And this is a, this is a age, age old debate in terms of will fintechs disrupt, you know, large banks or financial institutions or financial institutions will basically, you know, swallow fintechs in terms of solving the innovation problem, right? So what's your take on this, given your personal experience? Well, I mean, there, there's a whole element, you know, probably that is, is outside of the scope of, of probably the chat that we're going to have and definitely more complicated, which is the whole regulatory um, side of this. And, and regulation does have a big role to play in terms of how much FinTech is, is able to, to do. If we look at Ant Financial and the huge ecosystem that they built, they definitely circumvented a lot of the a lot of the regulation, they've been able to get support to do a lot of the great things that they have done. So I think regulation will definitely have a huge, or is a huge determinant in terms of how much fintechs will partner with financial institutions, and if they have, or how much of that cake they can take for themselves. Um, and that's really up to the regulators. But in the meantime, I do see a huge opportunity to collaborate. Um, and I think we're seeing that. If we look at five years ago, we see the big banks actually taking investment uh, stakes in fintechs, right? BBVA, Santander, and a lot of the big players, Goldman Sachs, are actually making investments from an investor point of view, but they've yet to really partner and and see how that's going to happen. So I think it's the regulatory environment needs to, I guess, catch up with technology and make the regulators comfortable that, yes, we can make payments through through WhatsApp, yes, Facebook can launch a currency and non-financial uh, institutions can, you know, give out loans. Got it. So I think, you know, what I'm hearing from you is financial institutions are incredibly complex organizations, right? It's not, they're not just focusing on one thing. It's a multifaceted stuff, including compliance regulations being a core to that, while fintech startups are focusing on some clear customer problem statements in solving that really well and ensuring that that kind of leads to a growth of that fintech in other areas later on in the process. So I think, you know, there looks like there is a coexistence of the, both of these kind of organizations will continue to evolve. That's a hundred percent right. And on, I mean, clearly we see uh, banks like Revolut and 26 Monzo, these are deposit based banks with great platforms, great user experience, but eventually, if, if they're going to be profitable, and that's the other question for, for fintech is how do they build that commercial model and how do they build that maturity? I mean, we know Revolut has gone through a lot of growing pains on the compliance side. Uh, most recently, we've seen what's going on with Wirecard. So all of these things are sort of, sort of makes you say, darn it, you know, it couldn't come in a worse time, right? Fintech is taking off and now the banks will will surely say, I told you so, these guys can't be trusted, they need to be, so I think it's with disruption, you know, we'll get these hiccups, but I think credibility is still strong in fintech. I don't think it's undermined. And I think this is a bump in the road. People will be cautious and the wave will, will continue. Superb. And I think that's a nice segue to kind of move into our core of our topic, which is also relates to the role that you have been performing in the leadership and the board positions for last years is the 
marketing, right? Marketing in financial services organizations, right? And you must have seen a massive change, right? In terms of how marketing has evolved. And we'll talk more about innovation and product and marketing. Just to kind of set the scene, Lewis, you know, while financial services have, companies have evolved, Marketing has also evolved dramatically, right? So, you know, just some kind of points from your side in terms of how you've seen the evolution and what has remained unchanged and other things have changed because of customer pressure or customer demand or technology evolution. Mm. Well, I think the whole MarTech side of things has, has really taken off. I really don't think the principles of marketing from a strategic point of view haven't changed. I just think technology is facilitating and, and coming in to fill a lot of the gaps. And some clear examples are definitely digital marketing is a big one. Whereas maybe 10, 15 years ago, it wasn't that developed. The ability to, to personalize and, and market in real time has definitely been a huge advancement in marketing. Marketing automation, all of the, whether you're talking about Eloqua or Salesforce is, is a big one, but also, the evolution of the CMO as more of a technology type of profile. So before, you know, marketeers were relegated to outdoor radio brochures and creative, and now it's it's more about how is marketing plugging into, because in order to do marketing, how do you plug into all of the data, right? So you're talking about data, you're talking about analytics, platforms, and customer journey and really following the customer through that journey. So it's become a lot more data-driven and a lot more technology and UX experienced, for sure. And you write about the marketing principles are the same while the center of gravity has become, first it became more digital from digital marketing perspective, and now it has become digital and data and technology kind of combined together and we you know we have seen a lot of research and it's proven right people used to before kind of talk about should we put some money on digital but now they're saying you know shall we put some money on outdoor for example so the center of gravity is is completely changed and this will continue to the digital marketing will continue to outperform the conventional marketing strategies now one of the things that that we are seeing is the role of data in marketing, and you and I always talk about this, right? Role of data in marketing. And when we say data, it's a basically thread that goes across from acquisition to service of the customers. What's your take on the role of data, either in your current kind of experience and organization or the previous ones that you've worked with? The role of data is huge because if, if you just take, you know, one of the examples that I worked with was as a marketeer, fine, you know, the typical thing is, well, now with digital marketing, you can actually calculate ROI and follow conversion. So, you know, let's assume when you look at the data, you're able to follow conversion at all, all points of your, from click to onboarding, from onboarding to uh, sale, from sale to activation, and then from activation to deepening and cross-sell and referral and loyalty. What that means is, your ROI now starts to depend and it goes back to what I was saying, where the CMO now needs to look at customer experience and needs to know that technologies to be able to interpret, you know, what are all of those inflection points in that funnel mean and how do you maximize conversion at every point in time? And I'll just give you an example of 
a place where I worked before, we had a, let's say, a cost per click of two pounds per client. In the end, when I calculated my cost per acquisition and ended up at 800, how do you get from $2 to 800? Well, it's conversion, right? If I were to convert 100% of the people that click, it would be $2. Obviously, I don't. So I was able to actually, it was pretty interesting because I was able to, and, and I presented to the board, and I didn't make too many friends that day. I was able to convince them that my CPA was $2, and I assigned a cost to each of the different departments. So what is compliance contributing to that 800? So the fact that we were not able to do a proper KYC in three days or we were rejecting was costing the company 200 pounds per client. So when you break the the cost per acquisition and each of the points of the funnel and you need to have proper data and you need to have proper analytics, you're able to assign a cost of compliance. So I said, look, my cost per acquisition is two pounds and not having a proper website or a proper onboarding is costing you a hundred, not having a, and I was able to rack up and do a full audit of how do I get from an initial $2 per click to an 800 CPA? So yes, data plays a huge role. A marketeer, a CMO nowadays needs to be very wary of where that loss in value and where the friction points are because they are translated into dollars. No, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, that brings me to the quote that I read is about the product, right? And product and marketing are now working much more closely together. And this has been proven by the startups where they build the product first and then they market, right? And, and some of the companies market first and then they build the product. And, and what we have seen is this kind of, you know, customer anticipation gap, right? In terms of what you market versus how customer experience their product. And sometimes, you know, they don't meet up with the marketing promises, for example. And you have been, a, I really think, you know, and I'm not just saying it, but I really think that you have been a proponent of, you know, a market year, but also you've been a proponent of great products, right? And I think bringing those two, two together, and that's where data plays a, a major role in connecting the promises with the amplification of the marketing messages. And this quote came from Brian Chesky, who's a co-founder and CEO of Airbnb. He said, build something 100 people love, not something 1 mil- million people kind of like. You know, I know that this is co- you know, very close to your heart. You have joined organization two fintech companies in last four years. You must have joined those companies on the basis of the product promise, the vision, the articulation of where this is going. And of course, you bringing this expertise of marketing and taking the product to a completely new level, right? So I, I just wanted your views on, as a marketer, how do you look at product? And, you know, how do you also make sure that, you know, there is a close connection between marketing and product, of course? Yeah, I think the glue that connects marketing and product is the customer, essentially. Um, and, 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 and that's probably where if, if both people are looking at the same focal point, then, then you're bound to be successful. And my experience in some companies is, yes, they, do, they develop products in silos and they need to go back and test what that pain point is. And for me, it's about looking at, at the brand from a 360 point of view is looking at what your reputation is, right? So it's, it's not just developing a product. It's about knowing four key 
pillars and everywhere I've been, I've sort of done the same analysis um, through a marketing performance agency. And I look at four things. I look at what is the perception of, of the company in the market? What is the perception of the product in the market? What is the perception of the marketing? And, and how do these fit against the competition? So you need to look at things in, in a very holistic way. And once you know that, and once you know your customer pain points, you can easily determine where is it that you need to innovate? What is that inflection point? What's going to take you from, like I said, a product I like to a product that I love? Stay with us. Once again, you're listening to the Knowledge Institute, the Brilliant Basics Edition. Today, we're talking about the future of financial services. We're talking about customer centricity, evolution of marketing, and of course, fintechs. I'm so glad to be here with Luis Tomasoni, who's the Chief Marketing Officer at Didea, who's joined us today to discuss these topics. Uh, Luis, you, you know, I think this, this will go against your name, which is a quote, amazing quote from you just before this break, was the glue that connects marketing and product is the customer. And I love it. And I think maybe I should name this podcast to be that because we're all about customer, right? And customer is what makes businesses successful you know, shifting gear a little bit towards current situation we are in with COVID-19, right? And, and how this is impacting not just financial services, but also, you know, the company that you're working at right now. Um, do you have a point of view in terms of, you know, I'm just kind of, you know, giving some thoughts from myself that people are actually working from home. They're not able to go out. You know, most of the banking is happening digitally. I think a lot of acceleration will happen with the digital investment now than ever before. Do you have a view on what COVID-19, you know, post-COVID-19 will bring to financial services, especially fintechs as well? I, I think it's driven, again, driven by the customer. And, and I can see in most markets, I think many businesses have been vastly caught off guard to this. I think it's going to change the level, you know, the, the playing field. Um, for Judea specifically, um, a lot of our customers didn't have payment gateways, so they were unable to, to actually sell online. They, they just weren't prepared for it, whereas the businesses that were able to, to take payments and do e-invoicing and have that payment gateway have been able to sort of keep themselves afloat. So definitely it's, it's changing the game in terms of from both ends. I think I can tell you as a consumer... It's changing the way we, we are consuming post-COVID-19. The emergence of cloud kitchens, you know, people are rediscovering the beauty of eating in their garden. They, they realize that maybe they don't need to go to a restaurant. And so there's a lot of restaurants that are adapting to that. So I think habits are changing and definitely merchants are rethinking their, their business models to accommodate for the change in, in, in consumer behavior. And, and do you think that larger companies will cooperate more with the fintechs, the most innovative companies, given the acceleration is what's needed? I think so. Um, with G with uh, GTA, one of the things that we're doing is we're definitely partnering up with the banks. And I'll give you one example. In, in the SME sector, banks have traditionally um, provided the POS terminals to the merchants. And basically, it's it's... For those of who are listening who don't know what a POS terminal, it's that huge brick that sits on the, on the merchant table that you swipe your card in or, or your top or, or you key in your pin pad when you pay with an NFC or a card. 
Well, the banks have, have had this business for years, right? But they've not, and, and it goes back to what I was saying before, they sort of just thought about themselves. How do we make take payments easier and collecting payments easier? Well, it's this brick. Well, enter Izetto, enter Square, where they've gone to the other side. How can we make the customer's life easier? And the development of EPOS software, right? So it's not just about taking payment, but how can I manage your store through this? How can I integrate payments with store management at the same time um, and help you manage employees, software, inventory, profitability? And that's where GDIA is, is, is developing that 360 all-in-one solution that banks cannot provide. And, and we're partnering with banks to sort of take, because the reality is that this SMEs or the small merchants are not profitable for banks. So to take these off their hands and, and be able to fill that void is a plus for them. It's a win-win situation. That's a, that's a great example. And, and I think that again comes from the leadership in these organizations as well. And some banks are quite ahead, other banks are not. Uh, but fintech companies or any startup is born on the, on the back of a, you know, a problem statement or a customer opportunity. You know, I'm just going to change the topic slightly because you've consistently played the, you know, senior management or the board level roles. You know, when you go with an idea to them about be it digital marketing or data or investment into customer, do you think they are ready to support all the time on those bases or do they, you know, are there any confusion or lack of, you know, digital literacy at the board level? And by the way, this is, you know, not pointing at a particular organization. This is just a general thing that sometimes, you know, we see in getting the traction that, you know, that needs to be had in these kind of situations. I think you bring up a very interesting point. And one of the things that hasn't changed um, and that has just been transferred from one place to another with technology and on has been attribution, right? So before people used to say, why invest in TV when I can do a, a door drop or a direct mailer and I have a direct it's that same principle, it, it, it just transfers over to digital, right? Why should I do content marketing, right? Why should I put out and why should I invest millions in putting out great content out there where I don't see a return? So it's, there's a lot of education to be done uh, at the board level in terms of digital marketing and how and that the funnel does exist in digital as well, right? You have your top of the funnel, your content, your nurturing, all the way down to the bottom of the funnel, right? Which is your, your PPC, right? So it's educating them on the role of the different channels. What, where are they in the funnel? And, and that you can't do a last click attribution. You always, in the end, you still have to look at the funnel as one, one piece, whether it's offline or online. So when you're doing B2B marketing, and in my experience is some areas are harder for the board or the execs to digest when it's not direct attribution. And I'll give you an example. I had a heart attack in the place where I was before. And, and again, it's anthropologists tell you that language drives culture, right? And in one of the first reports I saw in one of the companies where I was, they had acquisition and it was paid acquisition and then it was free acquisition. And I just had a heart attack. I'm like, what do you mean by free? Yeah, it's not, it's not PPC. It just, it's coming in directly. And I'm like, well, how do you think that happens? Right? How do you think people just magically land onto your website? So 
you know, to change the mindset of things that are free, if there's nothing free, you know, either it comes because you've invested in event and content and social and influencer, everything eventually comes, comes by either organic or inorganic, but, but there's an investment that is required to drive that. So I, I think the education piece around, around what each of the digital channels do and the different direct and indirect approaches to measuring success uh, is, is still ever present. That's that's a good one. And I think I'll take that away as well. There's nothing is free. There's always a price for something. And I think in this case, the price you pay is the digital education at the board level. I spoke to someone this morning, actually, in Bahrain. And he was saying that, you know, a lot of family-run businesses have this kind of culture of this is how we used to do it in our grandfather era, right? They're like, you know, they don't want to kind of try out new things. And now because of COVID-19, they're like, oh my God, we have to slice off, you know, X percentage of our cost really quickly, right? But they're not thinking about what is a new way of working? What is a new way of generating value? How do you use automation, AI, you know, data to make decisions? And I think what you're saying is basically education, especially as some of the family-run businesses or family-owned businesses as well, is so important, especially in the current stage, because it's the mode of survival, right? In terms of survival of not just the fittest, but survival of the fastest who can move in the current situation, the new normal. Yeah, and you go back, uh, Anand, going back to the data issue in the education, I think as a CMO and from a technology point of view, it's really on our shoulders to educate the board. And, And it's important to translate, just like I did in the ROI example, similar, you know, what is the cost? Can you quantify what is the cost of not doing, not investing in SEO? right? Is there a numerical value? Is there a value generated by optimizing the SEO and driving organic versus paid? And in the end, there is a value. There's a value in your quality score. There's a value in your search terms that you pay. Mm -hmm. So if as marketeers, we expect people to get it, right? Um, and, And we just limit ourselves to you don't get it and you have to trust me. It's not going to work. It's, you, you really need to put this into a numerical or a value-driven argument um, and show either a family-owned businesses why it matters, what is the value, um, and be able to prove it and show it to them. And, and when that happens, I found they are very open. Absolutely. And I think that's, that's where the, the sign is, right? And I think you know, in a bizarre way, I can say that post-COVID will be a much more kind of opportunity to be created for these businesses because they're forced to change. And sometimes you need that necessity to change as well, which is in a way uh, quite positive. Louis, one thing we have seen, especially in a kind of management or the board structure is uh, CTO or CIO, Chief Information Officer or Chief Technology Officer and Chief Marketing Officer. That relationship is incredibly critical to make anything work really well. And this has been a hostile ground in the past with, within large financial services or any kind of enterprise for that matter. Do you see that relationship between a CTO and a CMO flourishing, you know, going forward, especially in the current role that you're playing, but also in future? They're intricately woven, Anand. It's interesting because we had, we actually had a very interesting debate on on the difference between UX and UI. And, And most people don't know the difference. And when you get into UI, you're getting into a, like I said, is in the traditional financial services, you had product was a 
department and very specific people designing loans and credit cards. You had technology just working off the back end separately. And you had marketing doing their brochures. They could easily coexist without even talking to each other in years. Now that's impossible because in fintech, technology is the product. And UI is an integral part of that from a design point of view, married up with a, that's dependent on the UX, right? So UX and UI are, are both coming, coming to a head. And, and that's where the CTO and the CMO are, are definitely need to join up, whether it's in terms of generating that seamless customer experience or making sure that the data is, is arriving at the right place at the right time. Uh, it's so true, actually. And, um, you know, there's still a long way to go for enterprises to operate like that, but we still see a lot of friction and need for customer centricity from both the types of marketing and technology organizations rather than working together. And what I love about what you said was the customer is the glue, nothing else. And I think sometimes that get kind of missed out. Louis, in terms of what's the most difficult part of your role as a CMO? Probably, I spend a lot of my time getting through the technical part of creativity and and educating the board Um, because everyone will have an opinion, but everything, there's a science to everything and and it has to be based on customer feedback. So it's the hardest part is building enough lead time to do the proper homework and build the proper foundations to get the right data and the right foundations to make creativity effective. And a lot of times create, you know, people, people start with the creative and that's, that's the wrong approach. So the hardest part for me is to rein in people's excitement for the creative and getting them to really focus on the customer and the customer analytics to get the right foundations upon which a proper creative strategy can be built. Got it. So I think sometimes it's not just the ideas and creativity, but also mechanics to get them delivered. Sometimes, you know, dealing with that internal processes or inertia could be challenging, right? Have I summarized that in the right way? Yeah, uh, definitely. Sometimes when creativity is based on on emotions, then you're bound to, to get it wrong. And creativity is a science. And once I, I drive the teams and bring people on board that journey, it becomes a lot easier because then you're discussing creativity or creative options or design options within already a predefined framework where people are tend to be indifferent. Then, then there's flexibility. But when you don't have those principles tied down, then creativity tends to become unhinged and, and not get all over the place. Beautiful, beautiful way to summarize that. And Imagine, Louis, you're, you're, you're speaking to, you know, CEOs in front of you and you're basically giving them some recommendations about navigating marketing and digital and data in marketing, creating value. What are some of the two or three things you will say to them about what they should be or they could be doing to make their brand and the product and amplification better and bigger? Number one, listen to your customer. Um, and it's a wealth of knowledge, listen to your customer is is the number one. Listen and know your customer, know what their pains are, um, know what their business are, and then you'll be able to develop the right solutions and and, and the right products for them. Two, 
be ready for change because listening to the customer will mean taking decisions that you may may not have considered or maybe going into certain territories that you didn't think of or making U-turns on products on projects or products that you've you've gotten emotionally attached to. And that's the thing. Do not be emotionally attached to anything. Listen to the customer. That's that's the number one. Brilliant. Luis, thank you so much for your time. We're the last segment of our show. You know, before we ask you about your favorite book that you might be reading currently or you've read recently and why, we kind of missed out who Judea is. So a little bit about who Judea is, what do they do, where are they based? Judea was founded about 10 years ago as a very small fintech in providing payment terminals to financial institutions. So basically providing all of the hardware all of the digital hardware for payments. So anything from the POS terminals in a shop to the kiosk or unattended terminals. You know, when you go pay for your parking at the airport, where you tap and or a vending machine, all the way down through to ATMs. It was started by Abdullah bin Faisal Alotman, which is a very young, energetic entrepreneur who started the company uh, about three, four years ago. We concluded our first round of funding through Abu Dhabi Capital, significant investment, and basically with a vision to make technology affordable, accessible, and intuitive for everyone. And with that came the actual, the second wave of Fort Judea, which is to sort of leapfrog where we're from to, to go directly to the merchant to provide 360 solution for them and, and not just payment terminals, but store management, um, any commerce solution. So all in one. So a merchant, instead of going to a bank and just getting a terminal with us, they will get e-commerce solutions and e-post solutions to help them manage inventory, online sales uh, and payments uh, all in one. That's brilliant. Thank you, Luis. You know, somebody, Alexandra Pay from PayPal said the major winners will be financial services company that embraced technology. And it seems that Jadea is a, is a great example of that journey, right? A 10-year-old company changing, evolving, bringing marketing innovation product together is, is just fantastic. Uh, so thanks for sharing that, Lewis. And, uh, and in terms of your favorite book and, and you know, why you rate it? Um, my favorite book uh, has a lot to do with where I was before. And it's, um, it's uh, the house that Jack built. And it's about Jack Ma. Where I was before we, we were acquired by Alibaba and, and actually had um, the, the honor of, of actually going to Hangzhou and going to their headquarters, um, being at the 20th anniversary, seeing Jack Ma last speech uh, in front of 60,000 people. It was, it was like a Super Bowl party. It was amazing. And, and it's about his passion for the customer. It, it's a book that it's, it's not just about his life, but it's about a way of of living a way of thinking, you know, throughout this podcast, I guess that theme has constantly come out. Um, and it's interesting because you go to companies and, and many companies where we were, I'll give you an example, our motto or internal communications used to be, we're employees first, we're employee centric. And shifting that mindset to customer centric was a huge culture shift. And, and once you become customer centric, and just changes everything because if you're customer centric, then your vision, your mission, your value proposition are aligned. 
you know, I do, I practice yoga and, you know, they always say when you align your seven chakras, right, you, you reach that third eye. So it's, it's very similar. If you're customer centric, then your vision will be that, your mission will be that, your products will be that, and everyone is aligned. And reading, you know, the book and, and being at Judea, we sort of are going through that same journey where we ask ourselves, is this achieving our vision? And if it's not, don't do it, right? And for example, we just realigned uh, our strategy and is this making technology more intuitive? If it's not, don't do it. If it's more accessible, don't, you know, do it. And if it's not affordable, don't do it. So everyone is aligned to that, whether it's HR, whether it's, finance, whether it's technology, CTO, marketing, everyone rallies around that customer and it makes the conversation so much easier. So it's a book that I haven't finished yet. It started, but it's definitely tied to the six values of Alibaba um, and into his passion for, for customer excellence and, and, and bringing that customer centricity and everything everyone does. That's brilliant. That's a, what a great way to describe the, the whole theme of this conversation through a book as well. So. Thank you for that, Lewis. In terms of how can people find you online, Lewis? Where are you? Are you on social channels? Is there a way for people to find you online? Yeah, they can reach me on on LinkedIn. Uh, for those of who are more brave, on on Instagram, on Facebook, and uh, definitely you know Twitter. I'm on across all the channels. Anyone who wants to reach out, conversations, share thoughts, more than happy to to help out. Brilliant. Love it. Thank you so much. And I'm going to repeat the quote again, the, the glue that connects marketing and product is customer. And that's been the theme of our discussion today. Luis Tomasoni, CMO at Judea. Uh, Luis, thank you for a really highly interesting discussion and your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Anand. It's been a pleasure as always. And look forward to speaking again soon. Everyone, you have been listening to the Knowledge Institute, the Brilliant Basics edition where we talked about future of financial services today. You can find details on our show notes and transcripts at infosys.com forward slash IKI in our podcast section. Thanks to our producer, Yulia Debari, and our helper and researcher, Kate Daswani, and the entire Knowledge Institute and Brilliant Basics teams for making this podcast happen. Until next time, keep learning and keep sharing. And of course, stay safe.